0: I believe in God the Father Almighty,
1: Creator of heaven and earth.
0: I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived
1: by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary.
0: He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried.
1: He descended to hell. The third day He rose again from the dead.
0: He ascended
1: to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty.
0: From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit,
1: the Holy Catholic Church,
0: the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins,
1: the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Revelation 4, 1-11 through After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven— And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created.
0: Well, today, as we continue our series in the Apostles' Creed, we want to think more deeply about that phrase in the Creed that reads, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Now, in our previous session, we considered the nature and character of God. and reminded us of his eternal fatherness, His adopted fatherhood of creatures like us, and His almighty capacity to bring all things to pass according to the good purposes of His will. In this session, we want to confess His great work in creating all things. We want to think about what that means for us, and then how it should shape what we love and what we believe. Now, it may seem strange to start a message on God as creator of heaven and earth, by reading a chapter in the last book of the Bible. After all, everybody knows that the creation account begins in Genesis chapter one. So why start the message in the book of Revelation? Well, I chose to start here because of the sake of perspective we gain when we start in, the Re- in Revelation. This chapter and really the rest of the book gives us a glimpse and, into the part of God's creation that would otherwise be invisible to us. It's part of his creation that responds appropriately to the truth that God is the creator of heaven and earth and all that is in them, both visible and invisible. So if you remember the reading, here in this particular place, John is taken up into this place that's just as real as the island of Patmos where he's currently exiled. The difference is that the isle of Patmos is on earth and would be visible to creatures like us, whereas the place to which he was taken is in the heavens and consequently invisible to us. John records what he sees when he gets there. And the first thing that he notices is this throne. It's a throne that's occupied. It's a throne that's surrounded by amazing creatures. And honestly, the descriptions he provides are literally mind-bending. And repeatedly in this place, and to no one who is there's dismay, God's nature and his character is announced by these exotic multi-winged living creatures. They announce holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And around that central throne and those living creatures are 24 other thrones occupied by 24 elders who obviously represent all of the people of God taken from the 12 tribes of Israel and all of the people of God who have come to be so by belief in the message the apostles, uh, the 12 apostles of Jesus brought to bear, the gospel. And each time these four living creatures announce God's nature and character, these 24 elders respond in heartfelt, willing worship ascribing glory and honor and power to God. Get this, because he is the one who created everything and who s- sustained it. Do you see it there? It's that little word for. is actually the word because. Everything that they focus on is because they recognize themselves as created being. The very fact that they are there to see and to participate in the worship of him who sits on the throne is because he who sits on the throne has created them so that they could be. And it's also clear that these creatures would rather be no place else in all of the created domains than right there doing exactly what they were created to do at that point in time. So that, here's my main point, and this is why I start in Revelation. God created and sustains all things so that we, His creatures might fully enjoy his beauty and magnificence. Now, in the invisible heavenly realms where John is standing as he writes this chapter, this happens constantly. It happens joyfully. It happens enthusiastically. And, of course, we'd have to admit that in the visible earthly realm where we live, well, that kind of joyful, enthusiastic, constant appreciation of God's beauty and excellence, it hardly happens at all. May we often recite that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, but it rarely seems to move us like it moves these creatures in the created realm. So in the time that we have remaining, I want to explore, first of all, why that might be, and secondly, what we might do to remedy the situation. That is, to bring our way of thinking and living into joyful alignment with the belief that God is the creator of heaven and earth. First, why do we on earth think and respond differently to the fact that God is creator of heaven and earth than they do in heaven? And I'd like to suggest from this particular chapter a few things that I notice. I noticed that in heaven, they think about God as creator differently than we do. In addition, they think about the creation differently than we do. And then thirdly, they orient themselves as creatures differently than what we do and let me take a few minutes to unpack what i mean there first of all when we think about god as creator we we imagine him more like a designer uh, an inventor of all that's been made when we think of god as creator or, excuse me when they think of god as creator they regard him as as the generous owner of all that exists as this gracious ruler over everything that's been made When we think about God's relationship to creation, we tend to think of him as kind of this ultimate hardware, software developer. I mean, somewhere in the trackless realms of time, all of the science and all of the math and all of the processes and all of the principles were sketched out by the Trinity. They were discussed. And then when the time came, in some big bang event, the whole thing started to come online. And since then, miracle of miracles, everything's been working pretty much as it was designed to work and, and made to function. It's worth noting that Literally no place in the Bible, do they really care about this kind of approach to to the, the creation? Nobody really spends a lot of time trying to focus on how God did what God did. But we tend to focus on that all the time. Okay, So here's my point. We tend to think of God as the inventor and designer. They think of God as the owner and the ruler. When they think about God's relationship to the creation, what they see is someone sitting on the throne, ruling over all of creation, who at the same time, effortlessly yet intricately governs everything at every moment for his own purposes and designs. Now, can you see how these two different perspectives can kind of lead us down two different paths? Can you see that how when we look at God as the creator of this machine that came into existence however many thousands or billions of years ago, it leads us to think of him as being distant, aloof, somewhat mysterious, that somehow he's way back there in time, way out there at the edges of space and not really intimately involved in what's going on right now. That's not how they see it though. When they see God, they see him exactly at the center of everything. They see him as the organizing point for everything that matters. For them, he's near, he's engaged, and he's absolutely, overwhelmingly beautiful and worthy of worship and praise. And I'm suggesting that the way we see the creator is different than the way they see the creator And our way of looking at him tends to draw us away from him. Their way of looking at him tends to draw them into him. But it's not just the creator, it's the creation also. Uh, When we tend to focus on the creation, kind of because of the way we look at God, we tend to look at the, uh, the amazing machine that's been built. We focus on the mechanics, the magnitude of what's out there. We treat the cosmos as if it's some kind of museum artifact to be studied, analyzed, and explained. We're standing somehow outside of it, spectating onto it, but not really engaged with it. With them, when they look at what's created, they see it as the source and reason for expressing glory and honor and power to the creator. They give him glory because he created all things and by his will, they were created and they exist. See, our our technique and technology-oriented approach, which fixates on the thing created, tends to open the door for us worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator. They're never at risk of making such a fumble. This is not to say that we should be anti-scientific by any stretch of the imagination, far from it. The more a person digs into the beauty and complexity of the natural world, the more reason they find to praise and marvel at the Creator. It is to say, however, that when the agenda of scientists is to disprove and discredit the hand of God and His handiwork, well, we should at least be skeptical. And we should always tend to opt for heaven's perspective, which concludes the obvious truth. You, Lord, have created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So here's what I'm suggesting so far. I'm suggesting that we struggle to see and be moved by God as creator because of the way we look at the creator, because of the way we look at creation. And I'm suggesting thirdly, it's because of the way we think of ourselves as creatures. We tend to both think too little and too much of ourselves at the same time. When they think of themselves as creatures, well, they step fully into their respective roles. And they rejoice completely in the centrality of the throne. Here's the reality about us we tend to fritter away our days bouncing between two incompatible self opinions. At the one moment, we, we don't really, uh, we imagine that we're not good enough. We're imagining that nobody really cares about us. We, we imagine that what we do doesn't really matter anyhow. And then, as if with the flip of the switch, we get quite upset because we're always being overlooked. Well, if we're not really good enough, why shouldn't we be overlooked? But we get upset about that. We we don't appreciate the others that are around us and, and we don't appreciate not being appreciated by them as though somehow we should be more important. We don't like the fact that our contribution, which we actually thought was pretty darn significant, doesn't get recognized. Whether we realize it or not, we're always tending to put ourselves at the center of our self-absorbed universe. Now We've got to be honest. There's no creature in heaven that thinks that way about themselves. They're never conflicted. They never imagine themselves to be the center of anything. And here's the thing. It sets them free to be fully and completely what they were made to be. I mean, the four creatures around the throne, they're set free to notice and proclaim the endless glories of God. They never even seem to notice their own exotic definition and description. John noticed it, but you never get any indication that the living creatures are fascinated with themselves. No, no, they're fascinated with the one who sits on the throne. The same is true with the 24 elders. Whenever the announcement of God's glory is pronounced, They set aside whatever else they're doing on their thrones, from their thrones, in their ruling. They take off their crowns. They lay them before the throne, and they confess that he alone is worthy of glory and honor and power. And it's not as though it's being drawn from them grudgingly. It is as though they are doing what they've been made to do. Here's the point. While we fritter away our existence on silly, self-oriented soap operas in which we're the hero they're really living. I mean they're they're really alive. And they're fully enjoying doing so. So, if these are some of the reasons why we tend to remain mostly unmoved by the fact that God is creator of heaven and earth, and why in heaven there's no such disconnect, then, then how do we remedy the situation? Well, Let me just suggest maybe three observations that flow, I think, rather naturally from the three suggestions that I just offered. Uh, The first remedy would be to regularly confess and give thanks for God's governance over our life and His world. To regularly confess and give thanks for God's governance over your life and over His world. Take the lesson from the four living creatures and the 24 elders. Whatever else their roles and functions might be in their realm, the most important and meaningful thing they participate is in the worship of the one who sits on the throne. Remember, they do this because he created all things and by his will they exist and were created. They're merely opening themselves up to do what they were created to do, that is to confess God's greatness and give thanks to us. or Excuse me, give thanks to him. Now, it should not escape our attention that in the first chapter of Romans, where Paul identifies what's driving God's wrath being revealed from heaven, it's that people don't recognize his power and his majesty, that they refuse to honor him as God and give thanks to him. In other words, they willingly choose not to do what they were created to do. Whereas the creatures in heaven, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, they willingly choose to do what they were created to do. And that is to regularly confess and give thanks for God's governance over their lives, over the creation, and over his world. All right? So step number one, if we're going to remedy this situation, is to build into our lives these rhythms where we're regularly entering wholeheartedly into worship of God, knowing that that's exactly what we were created to do. A second remedy would be to stress less about the science and superstition behind creation skeptics and sing more about the beauty and blessedness of the Creator. I don't need to tell you that we live in a time where the dominant stories about the creation and our place in it defy the reality of even the need for a creator. The reality is you'll be laughed out of many sophisticated segments of our society if you publicly hold to the old-fashioned belief that God created the heavens and the earth from nothing. And our temptation is to think that we've got to take on the impossible task of reconciling the biblical record with the fairy tales and fabrications of so-called modern science. I'm just letting you know that we can stress less about that because if we pick up that task, we're bound to fail for at least two reasons. First of all, God's not provided us enough revelation about the science and mechanics behind his creative work to convince the skeptics. Okay, If, if he had... Well, there would be no skeptics. He simply has chosen not to give all of the details that modern skeptics claim they need to have in order to prove that God created things. He has chosen not to do that. Explaining the dates and the laws and the mechanics of how he created is simply not the interest of the biblical writer, nor is it the interest of the heavenly domain. They both write, and behave from the simple assumption that God did create the heavens and the earth, and all that is in them, and then they quickly move into the so-whats for us as creatures. They spend very little time wasting energy on explaining out all the math, the science, and the details, which is not to say those things aren't important. It is to say they're not as important. The second reason we're bound to fail in our attempt to try to convinced skeptics is they really don't want to be convinced. They're not interested in seeing the proofs, if you will, of God's creation as clearly as, as any creature can. They suppress the truth in favor of their own unrighteous desires. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter one. It's a shameful expression of honesty, but it's true. They would rather be heroes of their own stories and play the role given to them in God's glory. And I'm suggesting to you that when we stress about thinking that we need to figure out how science and the Bible uh, reconcile with one another, we're actually not going to win that battle. Now, that's not to say that, again, we should reject science. It's rather that we should be diligent to discover and observe and leverage all the wonders of creation. But it's more important for us to do that for our own soul's sake than it is to think that we're going to argue atheists into the kingdom of God. The bottom line is, they don't want to hear about God's kingdom. I would argue that our best apologetic in the face of a predominantly atheistic culture is to praise God as creator, as we marvel at the details of his creation and rest in the goodness of his governance. Living that kind of life that these creatures in the heavenly domain live is a great testimony a great apologetic to the reality of our creator so our first suggestion remedying the situation is to uh, regularly confess and give thanks for god's governance in your life and in his world our second remedy is to stress less about the science and superstition behind creation skeptics and sing more about the blessedness and beauty of the creator the third is to step fully into the reality of jesus the christ our lord He says, John continues his account of what he saw in heaven. When he entered into the real, though invisible realm of the heavens, he noticed a seven sealed scroll in the hand of the one who sat on the throne. Now it's obvious that from what follows that that scroll is something like the, the title deed to all of creation. In other words, God created everything he created so as to give the rights to that creation to someone. It exists and was created to be his gift to that someone. But to John's dismay, as the chapter goes on, when asked who among the created beings was entitled or worthy to take and open the scroll, well, there's not a single creature to be found. And this causes John deep distress, and he weeps bitterly until one of the elders places his hand on John's shoulder and says, don't weep any longer there actually is someone who has prevailed it's the lion of the tribe of judah the root of david he's he's prevailed and he's gained the right to take and open the scroll and when john looks up there between the throne and the living creatures amongst the elders is this lamb who has been slain he takes the scroll from the Creator, and and we discover that He's not merely a created being, but rather He is Jesus, the Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if we thought that it was loud in heaven before this, Well, when Jesus is revealed as the one for whom the creation was made and who has prevailed to take its title deed, the volume kicks up even louder. We read that myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels join in with the creatures and the elders. And then we read that every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea join in in this amazing song giving praise to the one who is the revealed owner, the beneficiary, the recipient of the entire creation. You see what's happening here? As Jesus is revealed to be the Christ and Lord of all, every created being, visible and invisible, is gladly acknowledging, gladly recognizing their creator. And for them, in that moment, everything in creation is set right and they find themselves doing the only thing that matters. The only thing worth spending any time or energy doing. They cry out, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them joined in saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor in glory and might, forever and ever. My brothers and sisters, when we confess that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, we're merely joining into the song that's been sung forever in heaven, and will one day be sung all around the world. Namely, that Jesus the Christ, without whom nothing was made that was made, is Lord of all, to the glory of God the Father. We're doing what we were made to do. Join me in prayer. Our Father, you have graciously and generously made us to be the creatures we are. You have given us the privilege of entering into joyful, heartfelt worship of you based on a recognition of the fact that you have made us and everything we enjoy. Help us, Lord, to do that. Help us to regularly confess your greatness as creator and governor of this world. Help us to spend more time fixated, fascinated on your beauty and your blessedness and grant that we might make Jesus Christ more and more the center of our hearts and lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thank you for listening For more resources, information, and opportunities to connect with us at the King's Church, please visit our website, kingschurchlkld.com.